Okay, so I have a question for us this morning. Here's my question. Do you ever pray for a miracle? Do you ever pray for a miracle? I bet you have. We all have, right? Um, Think of one example in your life of a miracle that you prayed for. Like, just kind of allow your mind to to roam and consider one thing that, that you've prayed for that in order for it to happen, God would have to intercede in a miraculous, supernatural way. Right? You got something in your head? Sometimes the things that we, like the miracles that we pray for are like big, um, amazing things that, you know, somebody's hurting, struggling, whatever. Sometimes they're, they're less than that. I remember when I was, this is probably 25 years ago. So I'm 46, so early 20s, somewhere around in there. And um, I, I came home late one night, and I was flipping through the channels, which could be dangerous, but I'm flipping through the channels, and I came across a pastor who was a, a prosperity gospel pastor, so kind of health and wealth. You know, if you believe enough, then, you know, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you money, whatever it is. And so, there, you know, that's like not uncommon to see when you're flipping through the channels late at night. But what made this guy uncommon is that um, he talked about his shtick, his thing was um, this green handkerchief. This is a true story, okay? And so he said he had this green handkerchief that you could call in and he would send to you, and it's a handkerchief that he personally touched, he personally prayed over, and he personally blessed. And if you took that handkerchief in the mail and at nighttime you put it over your wallet (laughs) or your purse, this is true, for, for like up to seven days. It might take seven days for God to do the miracle. But if you did, then he promised that God would multiply your money. He would multiply your money. And so uh, you, you may hear that and you go, well, that is so ridiculous. Like, where does that come from? How, like, who would ever believe that? Well, do you know where this comes from? Where he pulled this from? This is so interesting. Actually, in the book that we've been studying, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11, I don't have a slide for it, I'll just read it to you. This is what it says. This is where this guy pulled it from. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so he's talking about Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he touched, that touched his skin, were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Right there, right in the Bible. So, Interesting interpretation and application of it. I guess he considered himself like on par with Paul in this. Eventually, we'll come to that passage in Acts chapter 19. I'm going to have Tim preach through that passage. So it's a little safer that way, right? So anyway, I'm probably again in my early 20s, kind of poor, totally skeptical, of course. But I see this guy, it's late at night, you know, I'm tired. But I see this guy and I'm a little entertained and I thought, eh, why not? I pick up the phone. I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? If nothing else, I could get a, get a good story out of it. So I picked up the phone, and I called, and I gave them my information. And sure enough, however many days later, this green handkerchief came in the mail. And so I eagerly took the green handkerchief out of the package. And that night, I set my wallet on the counter, and I put the handkerchief over my wallet. And I prayed that God would, you can say it with me, this is how he did it, that God would multiply my money. You want to say it together? Multiply my, you don't have to say it together, it's ridiculous, right? So anyway, so I took it, put it, God, multiply my money. I wake up the next day, eagerly open my wallet, guess what happened? Nothing, right? But I thought, you know what? He said it could take up to seven days for God to multiply my money. And so for the next six days, I did the same thing. I put 
you know, the handkerchief. I put my wallet on the counter. I put the handkerchief over my calendar, I, uh, over my wallet, and I prayed that God would multiply my money. So on the seventh day, the last day, nothing had happened up to that point. So I ex- fully, ex- fully expected that last day that God would multiply my money, right? So I put my wallet down. I put the handkerchief over it. I prayed. I went to bed. I wake up the next day, and guess what was in the wallet? A hundred dollars. No, I'm just kidding. There was nothing in the wallet, right? There's nothing in the wallet. And so I go, well, okay. Well, at least I got a good sermon illustration out of it for us, right? So, so miracles. I asked you to think about a miracle in your life. Something probably not as ridiculous as that, right? But something that you've prayed for, that for it to be accomplished, God would have to do something supernatural. You have something in your mind? Now think about this. Why did you pray for that miracle? Like, why did you pray for that miracle? Why did you lift that prayer up to God? I prayed for mine pretty much exclusively for myself, mostly to entertain myself because I didn't really think that this was going to work. But I assure you, if there was actually $100 in my wallet, I probably would have spent it on a new pair of shoes for myself, right? So clearly, my prayer was all about me. Or perhaps you've prayed for a miracle that was really about somebody else. Maybe you prayed for somebody who was really going through a hard time. They'd been through some sort of traumatic event and and they were really struggling and you pray that God would miraculously bring healing to their heart. Or maybe physically they're, they're very sick and they're struggling and you're praying that God would do a miracle and that God would intercede for them. I had a, a funeral this week for a longtime chapel member um, here in Akron and she was 80 years old. 80, 80 years is, is a lot of years. That's a long life that God had given her. But I guarantee you, her kids were praying that last week of her life when it was looking bleak that God would miraculously intervene and that he would cause her kidneys and her colon to function properly, right? Like that's, that's we pray those prayers to God, right? Sometimes for our prayers, for miracles, others are the beneficiary. Now think about this. Think about the prayers that you see in the Bible, Think about, more specifically, the prayers that you see in the New Testament. Here's the third question. What's the purpose of New Testament miracles? Like, what's the purpose of the miracles in the New Testament? We've seen some of these already in our, in our short look in the book of Acts, the first nine chapters. We've seen God do amazing, miraculous, supernatural things through the hands of the apostles. Like, what is the purpose of miracles that we see in the New Testament? What's God trying to accomplish? Well, that's what we're going to dig into this morning. We're going to pick up where, I'm going to pick up where Tim left off last week in Acts chapter 9. And at the end, so we're at the end of the chapter. At the end of Acts chapter 9, we see two miracles that God does that are amazing miracles. And I was praying about this yesterday and what I wanted to share with you. And I felt just strong in my heart that I needed to say Sometimes we can read the Bible, if there's a passage that's familiar to us, we can read it and we almost, we almost process through it like you would a movie or a series that you watch. And we read it and we go, okay, it's familiar, you know, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen, that happened. And it almost is entertainment to us more than this actually happened. This is real, 
right? And so I challenge you this morning. I don't know where you're at in your, your time in the scriptures, your, your study of God's word. If you're somebody that's gone through this, I've probably read this passage dozens of times. And there's the, the temptation for familiarity to breed contempt. And we just sort of read through it in a matter-of-fact sort of way. Resist that temptation. These are two people that God does some of the most extraordinary, extraordinarily miraculous things in their life. And God doesn't just do these things 2,000 years ago, and we'll circle back to this at the end, but he does these things today too. So as we're reading this, I want you to imagine, like try to put yourself in there and imagine what it must have been like for God to do. These are real people. These things actually happen. You track them with me? So do the hard work of putting yourself in the passage. So as you do it, I want you to ask yourself one question. So kind of as we dig into this, I I have one question. I want you to kind of be a filter in the back of your mind, and it's this. What was God's purpose in the New Testament in accomplishing his miracles? What What was the purpose that God was trying to accomplish when we see these miracles and other miracles done in the New Testament? Okay? So I want that kind of in the back of your head. Okay, so open your Bibles to Acts 9, 32, if you're not already there. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, there's Bibles in the back of the pews. It's page 918 in the church Bibles. So if you remember from last week, the persecution. So at this point in Acts, there's been lots of persecution that's gone on in the church. And the leader of that persecution was a guy named Saul. And so the point that we're at right now, Saul has become a believer. God has kind of grabbed hold of his heart. And in a supernatural, miraculous way, he showed himself to him. And Paul's whole life has been changed. And as Paul is not leading the persecution of the church, all of a sudden there's peace. And the church starts expanding. It says as people are walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. As they're doing that, the church is growing. The church is multiplying. And so here again, we see, we've talked about this, Tim and I both have talked about this numerous times throughout the book of Acts. We see this continued fulfillment of Acts 1-8. You remember what Acts 1-8 is? It talks about the church growing, the church multiplying, spreading from Jerusalem to all of Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we're seeing it over and over and over again. And so whereas in the last couple of chapters, again, the focus was on Saul, now we flip back over to Peter, okay? So Acts 9, 32, here's what it says. Now as Peter went here and there among them, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That's a pretty amazing miracle, right? Like this guy, this guy lived. It's 2,000 years ago, a different part of the world, paralyzed for eight years, and God does this miraculous thing inside of him. And so Peter's traveling around. One of the books that that I read in preparation for today described it as like Peter was kind of on this preaching tour. So the last time we saw Peter, he was also with John. It was just the chapter earlier in Acts chapter 8, 14 to 25, when Peter's working with Simon the sorcerer there. And since then, apparently, Peter has been traveling, as it says in the passage, here and there just kind of traveling about, telling people about Jesus. And so eventually he makes his way to Lydda. Lydda's near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So if you have Jerusalem right here, Lydda is to the northwest about 23 miles, 
And then if you kept going another 10, 11 miles, you'd hit Joppa, which is where we're going to go next in the next passage. And then that's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? So he's traveling to Lydda. That's where he's at, right there. Um, and he goes to the saints, he's, it says, in Lydda. That's actually a, a word that's not often used in the book of Acts, but it's used twice in the passage that we're going to look at. That word saints, all it means, I remember in seminary I did a, a word study on this. That word, I looked at every example in the New Testament where it used the word saints. You know what it means? Christians. That's all it means. People that are Christ followers. And so Peter goes to the Christian community at Lydda, which is interesting And it's interesting because we don't know how that community heard about Jesus. Actually, don't know. There's there's nothing in the uh, the New Testament that says Peter went there before or John went there. It wasn't Paul that went there. Maybe Philip potentially went there, right? Like if you remember, um, so. So Lydda is on its way to Azotus. So if you remember Philip, uh, we looked at a couple weeks ago, after he uh, baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, Tim preached on this, it says all of a sudden he like turned up in Azotus. And we're like, man, what happened there? Did he like get transported by the Holy Spirit? Or did he travel there or what? If he actually traveled there, which we don't know if he did or not, maybe the Holy Spirit just transported him. But if he traveled there, he would have traveled through Lydda. But we don't know, who knows? But the big takeaway is this. The gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it's spreading not just because of the apostles going out. It's not just the leaders of the church. It's not just the professionals. It's the common people like you and me whose lives have been changed and they're going out and they're telling more and more people about Jesus and the gospel is expanding and expanding and expanding, which is a good reminder for me. It should be a good reminder to us. Telling people about Jesus is not just for the professionals. That's for all of us, right? As he's, transform- as he's transforming our lives, we can't help but keep it in. We can't help but tell people. We can't keep it in, right? And that's what was happening there. And so it found a man eventually named Aeneas, presumably in this Christian community in Lydda. And Aeneas was paralyzed for eight years, which is a long time, right? Like it's easy to glance over that, but think about your life. Like, think about all the different things that have happened in your life over the last eight years. There's been a lot of things in my life that have happened over the last eight years. You know why? Because eight years is a long time. And it's especially a long time when you have paralysis in first century Israel. Like, think about that. No wheelchairs like we have wheelchairs today. No healthcare systems like ours. No social services like ours. Bedridden, it says, for eight years. Listen, paralysis would be incredibly hard no matter what time period or culture you lived in. It would be especially hard in first century Judea. And so you wonder, like you try to get into Aeneas's mind, eight years is a long time. You wonder if by this point, when Peter meets him, like has he given up hope, you know? Like I would guess the first few years after, we don't know how he became paralyzed, But you guess he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would cause his legs to work, and they didn't. And so by this point, has he lost hope? Has he given up? Well, somehow Peter realizes that Jesus Christ is 
is intending to heal Aeneas through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter comes to this conclusion. Somehow Peter realizes this. One resource I read, I just thought this was an interesting way to describe it, described Peter as having an unusual level of the Holy Spirit's power. An un, Peter had an unusual level of the Holy Spirit's power, which I think is a good way to explain what God was doing through the apostles. And I hear that, and if I'm honest, I'm a little bit jealous with it. You know, because I think, I wonder what it felt like to be that filled with the Spirit. I wonder what it felt like to have that kind of intimacy with God. Peter somehow, as he's there with Aeneas, knew that Jesus wanted to heal Aeneas. And so what does he do? He heals him. And then he says to him, get up, take your bed. It would have been like a little thin mattress. Fold it up or roll it up. Stand up and go, right? And we're not aware, I just think this is interesting, we're not aware of any conversation that Peter had with Aeneas beforehand, right? Aeneas didn't beg Peter to heal him. It doesn't seem from the text that Peter was like searching for Aeneas. That, that word found in verse 33, it says, there he found a man named Aeneas. Sometimes when we use that word you, you find something. We can think of it as like you're searching for something specific until you find it. But that's not the sense in the Greek for that word. Maybe a better translation would be something like he came across Aeneas. He wasn't searching for him. He came upon him or he discovered him. And when you read it that way, you go, it almost, it almost sounds like it was kind of random, you know? Or like this spontaneous thing, which is interesting. And so after Peter says to him, Jesus heals you, get up, grab your mat, get, grab your bed, what does he do? Well, immediately, without hesitation, another translation says, he stands up, which I don't know what that sounds like to you. To me, I go, well, that, that, that intimates faith, right? Like that, that, is, that implies that Aeneas had some level of faith. Think, I had a guy between services say, I remember, you know, when I was such and such age and I was in the hospital for seven days. He said he couldn't get out of bed for seven days. And when he finally got up out of bed, he put his legs down and they immediately gave out. Seven days. That's what at muscle atrophy does, right? Can you imagine eight years? And Peter says, get up. And he immediately jumps to his feet. Like, that's faith, Right? He believes that what Peter says is true. He does it without hesitation. And then what happens next? Well, a bunch of people in Lydda, and then it says Sharon. Sharon's kind of the broader area, the plain of Sharon. They turn to the Lord, it says. And don't overlook that word turn. That word, that's a good description of what genuine faith entails, right? That's, it's a repentance term. There's a, whatever it is, genuine faith is, I was going one way with my life, and then I heard the good news about Jesus, and I turned from what I was following, and I turned to follow him. It's a good description of what genuine faith is. It's a change in the direction of one's life. And so through this first miracle, what happens? Well, the kingdom grows. More specifically, Jesus' kingdom grows. The number of people that recognize his power and authority and salvation grows. The renown of Jesus Christ increases and more and more people are saved. 
That's what happens, right? So, so that's the first miracle story. And so keep that kind of in the back of your head. And then here we go, on to the next one. Look at verse 36. Again, as, as we're going into this, think, what is God's purpose that he's trying to accomplish in these miracles? It's broader than just a healing, I'll tell you. So verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, said it's about 11 miles, 10, 11 miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him in Lydda, urging him, like begging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, which is an intentional choice of words. It's just a body when your spirit's departed, right? So turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. All right. So we just come from this miraculous healing, eight years being bedridden, At the words of Peter, you are healed in the name of Jesus. All of a sudden, this man's legs become strong and he stands up, miraculous healing. And now you have one that's even greater. You have somebody who was dead, who becomes alive. And so Peter goes from Lydda to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, because some of the disciples there, two guys, come to him and say, this woman who has done amazing things, she is a godly, she's done many good works for people, especially the poor, has died. Can you come with us, right? Which I, like, I read that, and I go, well, that's, that's fascinating, because Tabitha's dead, Right? Like, think of the miracles that you, that we, you were thinking of earlier, whatever it was. I've never prayed for a dead person to become alive. Like, that's not a miracle that, in my mind, I guess maybe my faith is weak. I don't know. I don't think about that. Like, we pray for people that aren't beyond help. Tabitha seems like she was beyond help. The time for help had passed. She's dead. Except... Maybe not if there's an apostle around, one in whom there is an unusual level of the Holy Spirit's power. Even though she was dead, the reputation of the apostles and the power of the Spirit living inside of them was so great that people believed that Peter could even bring somebody like Tabitha back to life. Wow, like that's wow. 
And I, and I read that and I think that's another confirmation to me that the miracles written about in the Gospels and in the book of Acts actually happened. Like if you sit here this morning and you're, you're a skeptic, you describe yourself as a skeptic, I think this helps to see. Like somewhere along the way, Jesus and his apostles developed this incredible reputation that they could do miraculous, supernatural things in the name and through the mighty power of God that he could even resurrect people. Like, can you imagine that? Somehow, people thought, Peter's only 11 miles away. Hey, 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 go down there and beg him to come with you. But she's dead, I know, but it's Peter, right? Like, that's, that confirms to me these things are true. So back to the passage. Tabitha, or Dorcas, it says. Tabitha was her Aramaic name. Dorcas was her uh, Greek name. So the New Testament's written in Greek, right? I don't like that word, Dorcas. I, I always call her Tabitha because uh, Dorcas reminds me of what my sisters used to call me. I have two older sisters when I was a kid. Dor so I always want to say it like Dorcas, like I've ever said to me. So I always call her Tabitha. But, so it, what it means in both languages, what it means is gazelle. Which I was thinking about this week. I'm like, God, is there any significance to that? Like what? Maybe she was like, you know, she used to have life and, you know, gazelles are flea. I don't know. But anyway, so she was an incredible person. She was an incredible woman. She did many good works, many acts of charity. Another translation describes that as helping the poor. She helped the poor by making uh, tunics and other garments of clothing for them, uh, for people in need. Maybe especially people like the widows that were there. Like very likely the widows that were grieving and mourning Tabitha's death were people that had been given uh, you know, garments of clothing that she had made for them. So she was a person of kindness. She was a person of charity. So when Peter goes there, he goes to the upper room where she's been laid, and he asks everybody else to leave, and he kneels down to her, and he says, Tabitha, arise. And somehow, again, like, I wish I could have heard his prayers to God. Like, I wish I could just be there quietly sitting next to him. Because I've prayed for many people to be healed. I just have. And most of the time, it doesn't happen. God is God. I, I trust that. But you know, you just wonder, did he pray differently? He was filled with the Spirit. He had an unusual level of the Spirit's power. And so somehow God spoke to him that she was going, he was going to he was going to bring her life back to her body. And he says to her, Tabitha, arise. And then I, like, this was one of the things for me. If you're somebody, I don't know what, you know, we're all probably different places in terms of our interaction with the Bible. I don't know what your Bible reading looks like. Um, maybe for some, you know, it's sporadic. Maybe for other people, it's very consistent. But, you know, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. I would encourage you, there's something different when you slow down and you read deeply into the Scriptures. When you study the Scriptures, it's a little bit different. And oftentimes when you slow down to do that, God... God just brings light bulb moments. I had a light bulb moment with this this week. As I, as I read this, there's a story of a healing, of a miraculous healing that Jesus does that, does 
that Jesus did that reminds me so much of what Peter did with Tabitha. And it's in Mark chapter 5, it's in Luke chapter 8, it's somewhere in, in the book of Matthew as well. And it's this time when a synagogue ruler named Jairus, maybe some of you know this story, Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter who's sick and he sends some people to Jesus to say, would you please come and would you heal her? And so Jesus comes and by the time he gets there, she's dead. So she has, she has passed away. And Jesus gets there and he goes into the room that she's in with no one else. So he kind of doesn't have anybody else in there except her parents and James, Peter, and John. Peter, James, and John. They're in there as well, but everybody else is gone. None of the mourners are in there. And Jesus prays for this little girl. He kneels down next to her and he prays and he says to her, it says in the, in the uh, passage, little girl, arise. And in Aramaic, in, in the uh, Mark passage, it, it gives the Aramaic as well, which is Talitha kum. Talitha kum. And I've read that, I don't even know how many times, dozens of times. And I never made the connection between that miracle that Jesus did and this miracle that Peter did. Because Peter's words were almost identical. Not only does he go there and he asks everybody to leave and he's kind of alone in the room with her, he kneels down and he says to her, Tabitha, arise. Do you know what that is in Aramaic? Tabitha, kum. Jesus said, Talitha, kum. Like one letter difference, which I just think is so interesting. And so you read that and you go, well, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. The first century readers that would be reading this stuff, they would have made that connection, and we should make that connection too. And I think what it does is it shows us that these miracles that Jesus did are very much in line with and connected to the miracles that the apostles did as well. They did the, the miracles in Jesus' name because Jesus is the miracle worker, right? It's just so interesting to me. And so Peter says to her, Tabitha kum, Tabitha arise. And she opens her eyes and she sees Peter and she sits up and then Peter helps her stand up and then everyone else is brought in and they see that Tabitha, who was once dead, is now alive. And what happens next? Well, word gets out. I mean, you have all of these people mourning her death. They saw her dead body. Her spirit is gone. And then all of a sudden she's there. And so word gets out and spreads all around Joppa. And then the kingdom of Jesus Christ grows more. It says, many believed in Jesus as Lord, which is another way of saying how Luke said it earlier with Aeneas' miracle. They turn, many turned to follow him. Two incredible, incredible miracles of people that actually lived. We're here this morning. I hope you're here this morning because we believe these things happened. These are real people who lived, who were healed by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And so go back to the questions. So I asked you, the, the first question I said, um, think about miracles you've prayed for. And then I asked you, like, what was, like, why did you pray for that miracle? What was your purpose in praying for that miracle? And then I asked you to consider the miracles in the New Testament like these. Um, and, and what is the purpose of miracles in the New Testament? Because it's broader than just somebody is healed. So, so here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to end our time. So, so we've looked at the passage. There's three things that I've been praying through this this week that just jump out to me that I, I think can help shape our prayers for God to do the miraculous in the future. 
Like sometimes we pray for ridiculous things like multiply my money or God help me win the lottery or I want to win this basketball game, whatever. Okay. But when we pray for serious things, I think it helps us to be in line with what the scriptures say, right? So I want to give you three things from these two miracle stories specifically, but I think it's broader. I think it's miracles that we see in the New Testament done by Jesus, done by the apostles, that I think will help shape our prayers for God to do miracles today. The first thing I ask myself as I'm studying this passage is, why did Peter do these miracles? Like, what was his motivation? Because he didn't need to do anything for Aeneas. He didn't know Aeneas. It doesn't seem like Aeneas or anyone else asked Peter to do this miracle. He just kind of came across him, and he decided that he needed to heal him. Somehow, God told him that he needed to heal him. And he didn't need to take the 11-mile hike up to Joppa when two guys come and say, hey, this woman has died. Is there, please, please come with me. Maybe there's something that you could do. He didn't know her. She was already dead. I asked myself, why did she go? Well, I think... Peter's first purpose in doing these miracles is this, and I think it's a pattern in the New Testament. It's to show compassion to the suffering and grieving. To show compassion to the suffering and grieving. You see it in Jesus' miracles all throughout the Gospels, and you see it in the miracles done by the apostles. I think Peter sees what's happening. I think he comes across Aeneas, and his heart is broken for him. I think he thinks about what life must have been like him for been like for him for the last 8 years and the torment and the struggle and I think his heart breaks for him and he has compassion. I think he sees the mourners for Tabitha, the widows and the other people there and how they're crying and heartbroken and I think he has compassion on them. Maybe Tabitha too, although Tabitha's dead. Tabitha's not in pain, she's not suffering, right? She's gone. So I tend to think Peter sees the mourning happening and it hits him in his heart and his heart is broken for them. And so he goes out of compassion. I think that's the first thing with miracles. Miracles in the New Testament, they're done with the heart of compassion for the suffering and the grieving. And so I want you to consider this as you think about miracles that you've prayed for in your life. I think this should be the first filter for our miracles. Am I praying this prayer out of compassion for the suffering or, or, and grieving? Like is my prayer others centered? Is my heart selfless or is it selfish? Often it's easy to focus on ourselves when we're praying for miracles, right? And sometimes we're the suffering one. Sometimes we're the grieving one, that's true. And of course, it's okay for us. If we're the ones suffering and grieving, it's okay for us. I think it's proper for us to ask God for a miracle for ourselves too. We see Jesus answering that prayer and we see the apostles answering that request in the New Testament as well. But I think it's a good first filter for us to ask ourselves, am I praying this miracle, praying for this miracle as a means of relieving some of the suffering and grief of those that are hurting? think that's a first filter for us. Second, you see the part in the healing stories, both the healing stories, where after Peter does the healing, people want to like celebrate Peter and they want to honor Peter 
and they want to start following Peter. You see that in the passage? What verse is that in? Oh, wait, it's not in there, right? Because that's not what happened. There's no indication from the text that after either of the miracles, people were like praising Peter or wanting to celebrate Peter, which to me, like as I read that, it's kind of surprising because you would kind of expect if Peter's the one doing the miracle, you'd kind of expect people to be pretty impressed with Peter and want to build up Peter. But that didn't happen. Instead, they realized that it was God who did the miracle and it was God to be the one who deserved the glory. And so I think about that. And here's, here's the second purpose, I think, of New Testament miracles. To magnify the renown of our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit God. So one is compassion for those that are struggling, suffering, grieving. We see that over and over again as a motivation, an outcome, a purpose, right, of the miracles. The second one is to make the name of Jesus famous, to magnify the renown of God. We don't know what all Peter said to the onlookers as he was doing these miracles, but man, he must have been really, really clear that he wasn't doing it because of his power. He wasn't doing it because of his abilities. This was the God of the universe's power that healed Aeneas and Tabitha. And so consider that in your prayers as like a second filter. Like as you're asking God for a miracle, are you praying that God above everything else, God, I ask this person's hurting, this person's struggling, they're sick, their cancer's ravaging their body. God, I pray that miraculously you would heal them. I pray that in the process, you receive all of the glory. I pray that as a result, your renown would be magnified. Listen, if I'm honest, there are many times I get a check in my spirit when I'm praying. I've prayed for many miracles. I bet you have too. There's many times I pull back and I go, I, I was just praying. I was just focusing on the person because they're hurting and, I, and my heart was breaking for them. But God, I never gave a thought to you. And it's been a check to go, God, not only do I pray for this person, but in this process, would you show yourself mighty and powerful so that the result is people know that you are the God of the universe, right? I think that's the second filter for these miracles that we see, and filter for our prayers as we pray for miracles. We should pray for compassion out of compassion, pray for the suffering and grieving. We should pray that to magnify the renown of our Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. That's the second one. Here's the third one. I gotta be quick here. This one might be the most obvious. To rescue those that are lost. To rescue those that are lost. So out of compassion for the suffering and grieving, to magnify the renown of our Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, and to rescue those that are lost. You probably saw it, verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, it became known all throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Listen, this is, this is really important. Log in for three more minutes. This is really important. In each of these stories, there were more than two people who were healed. There were more than two miracles that were done here. Through, through the two miraculous physical healings that we see with Aeneas and with Tabitha, there are many, many miraculous spiritual healings 
that didn't just end when their life here on this earth ended, but persisted through all eternity. As amazing as it must have been for Aeneas to be healed and Tabitha to be raised from the dead, listen, they both died. Tabitha died twice. Like, can you imagine? Like, it's kind of, I mean, I guess it's good. You got an extra life, but they both died. However many years later, however many decades later, their bodies are dust somewhere or sand somewhere. But their souls and the souls of many others who believed because of those miracles live on forever, for eternity, with our Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. That's a miracle. That's amazing. And so as we pray for God to do a miracle, don't forget that, that God uses that miracle. Don't forget to pray that God uses that miracle as a witness to his mighty power, his life-transforming power, his eternity-transforming power, so that through that miracle, not only is he glorified, but people's lives are changed. Their eternity is changed, and they turn and they walk with him. So, so let me say this before I close. Let me say this. This is not a formula, and you know this, because you're like me. You've probably prayed lots of things that uh, with with faith, with trust for really good people that did not get answered with a yes. This is not a formula that if you just pray with compassion for people that are suffering and grieving, if you just pray that God's name is, his, uh, his renown is magnified, if you just pray that as a result of the miracle people would come to him, then he's always gonna answer yes. It's not true. That's not true. God is sovereign. His ways are higher than our ways. He alone decides how, he's re how he responds. What we do is we humbly accept and we trust him. Our part is that whatever situation we're praying for, we pray in a way that's consistent with his word. We make sure our prayers are in line with his purposes. God in his compassion may answer our prayer for a miracle with a yes, he may do that but we pray that in that process, he brings glory to his son, Jesus Christ, and people would see this miraculous thing done and go, I'm following that God. That's a God who's worth giving my life to, right? These things didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. God is not a God who used to do miracles. He's a God that does miracles today. And so how I want to end our time, in fact, if you wouldn't mind standing up, I want to end our time in prayer. So I'm going to dismiss you today, but I want to end our time in prayer. I'm guessing that there's many among us who need God to do a miraculous thing, either in our life today or in the life of people that we love. And so why don't we join together as one family praying to him for those things. So let's do that. Father, I'm sure in a room this size, that there are plenty of people who are hurting and struggling, maybe have been abused, have been traumatized, are sick, have been given a terrible diagnosis, and what they need from you is a miracle. What they need for you is to intervene and do something that could not naturally be done on its own. 
or perhaps people are close with, somebody came to mind, as I said this, of somebody else who's in that exact situation who needs a miracle. Father, as your children, as brothers and sisters, we present these requests to you. You have an amazing capacity to hear all of us at the same time. You know what each of us are thinking, what each of us are praying. You're not just a God who heard prayers 2,000 years ago and acted in miraculous ways. You're a God who does it today. And so, Father, in faith, we lift these things up to you for people that are hurting with compassion. We pray that through whatever it is that you do, you would receive glory and honor and renown. And we pray that it gives us a story to tell of your goodness and your faithfulness so that lives are transformed forever, which is the greatest miracle. Eternities are transformed. And so God, as brothers and sisters, we entrust these things to you. And we do it knowing that your answer may be no. Or your, your answer may be in the life to come. And God, we acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways. You see things that we don't. You are the one forever praised, whether your answer is a yes or no. We trust you. So Father, I pray your blessing on each one here, on each one watching. I pray that each of us would know you and love you and walk with you. Bless us this week and use us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to pray more with somebody, there'll be some pastors and prayer team folks down front and they would love to pray with you. Love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.